Uh, everyone doing okay? Amen. Well, I have two quick little things I want to mention um, before we set up for today's teaching out of Ephesians. Um, first of all, I'm Pastor Eric. Good to meet you. If you haven't met me, uh, good to see you. If we haven't seen each other since last weekend or somewhere in between, um, I just wanted to uh, do a quick little thing. As promised, I'm going to continue to wear this, although strategically I may just not wear it because I promised someone that if they called me out on it, a youth, if they called me out and said, you forgot to wear your shirt, uh, that I could get them lunch or dinner. And I heard Cheesecake Factory was on high uh, possibilities there. So watch out. We'll see what happens. Um, with that being said, I do have a surprise. Uh, one of our elders, Eric, just mentioned, um, we are going to do a last minute end of summer surprise youth group trip to Kings Island. All right. Um, which is like, all right, we just came up with this idea, let's do it. We know that there's not going to be, you know, some people won't be able to come, but we already have a good crew of people that have kind of text some leaders behind the scenes and said, let's do this. Um, so if you find yourself within the middle school or uh, high school age range and you would like to be a part of it, please contact me. We're going to hopefully get carpools going so that um, all of those parents don't have to um, rearrange all of their plans. Um, but we're excited to be able to do it. Um, details, carpool, info, costs, and all that stuff will be coming out um, I'll put it out in an email next week. So if you're interested in coming, please let us know. I think we already have enough people to get the 15-person the group discount. So we should be on our way towards uh, a group discount. So, all right, if anyone wants to do that. Oh, the weekend of Labor Day. I know, I already talked to some of your guys' as leaders. You got something going on. Uh, weekend of Labor Day, Saturday. The Saturday of Labor Day weekend. Thanks for calling that. What? Oh, September 2nd. All right, you guys are super calm right now, and it's awkward. It really is just awkward. Uh, and then the other thing is, um, we have a new couples uh, ministry team in place that um, there was, I think there is, a, 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 we have been advertising kind of a placeholder event on the 8th, and uh, I may have that, that date wrong, but that's um, what someone communicated to me. Um, the current group wants to do something different, and so we're going to actually, if you've signed up, I think there's only a couple people signed up, we're canceling that, but the reason is because the new leadership that just kind of took over wants to do some different things and some exciting things. They actually have a, a, a great idea for some plans coming up, so mark that one off your calendars, but know that with this new team, we're actually going to have some some really awesome events for couples coming up. So keep an eye out for those things. Did I get that one right? All right. Amen. Still a little too quiet for my, uh, for my understanding. But all right, this is what we're going to do. Thank you. Let me say thank you. Um, I, it occurred to me, preaching what I preached last Sunday, if you haven't, if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to it because I'm going to lean on a lot of that this week. Um, but uh, it, um, there's a lot, in a lot of ways, um, place, well, so here's the thing, like you preach that and then you check your inbox to find out who's going to be upset about that. Instead of upset, what I heard is, thank you for preaching what you preached last Sunday. Text messages that said, thank you for bringing up this stuff about husbands and wives. Thank you for preaching on this stuff. So I want to say back to you all, thank you for being a supportive congregation as we want to um, bring these ideas to light and um, preach according to what we believe the context and consistency of Scripture is regarding households, that you all would see the liberation and the power behind it. So thank you all for your feedback, um, because uh, it's just honestly not something I take for granted at this point. So um, please uh, continue to walk in that liberation. There are three things that have to happen 
before um, I actually am able to open up the scriptures today. One is to do a quick recap so that you're not coming from zero to what we're talking about today in Ephesians 6. Um, I need to throw a perspective orientation at you and then land on a cultural resetting so that you understand where Paul was writing from. So first, the recap. Last week, we talked about the household codes. I put the emphasis on husbands and wives. In the Ephesian context, the city of Ephesus, there are two main areas, um, and we spliced it up. First, that there are this way in which people tend to view these verses, all right? A, B, and C. I'm going to reread them to you. Option A is usually when you read these verses, you think Paul is advocating that these are directives to be standardized for all people throughout all time. Husband, wives, children, um, fathers, parents, or sorry, slaves and masters. Option B, Paul is advocating for Christ-likeness, that's leaning, Christ-likeness in, in spite of the restrictive cultural norms, all right? And then option C is that we read these through codes, household codes, with uh, the idea that Paul is challenging the restrictive cultural norms by establishing a more liberating order. From henceforth in today's sermon, I'm going to say option A, B, and C, and you'll know what I'm talking about. We're good with that? All right? Those are the three, tends to be the three kind of ways that people read these scriptures. The next thing is that Paul wants, uh, sorry, the second thing is that we must take into consideration the context and the culture and make sure that that's consistent. What we say for husbands and wives, we've got to pull all the way through children, parents, um, sorry, children, fathers, and then slaves and masters. My hope is that we would open up the other options, is that if you grew up in this context, these other options would not just be opened up to you, but that it actually doesn't make as much sense to land here as maybe people had thought um, it did in the past, or maybe the context that you grew up in, like the one that I grew up in. And then finally, I think we're going to plant firmly here, but probably even more so here as we look at the context that Paul is preaching from, okay? So that's my quick little recap. The second thing is a perspective orientation. I remember having a conversation with somebody in, um, in a church that I was in. I was a pastor, and they said, I wanted to meet with you. I don't know Jesus, but I'm dating. Uh, I, I, met, I met a fine um, senior adult citizen uh, that I want to marry and over the pickleball courts. And um, I'm not a Christian. She is. She goes to your church. So I need to find out more about this church because she really wants me to become a Christian. Okay. Weird. Uh, that's a weird situation all around. Um, but let's go to Denny's and we're going to talk. And he said, I can't, opening line, I can't believe in a God that taught that slavery was okay. Um, I agree. But then my question was, why do you think that about the scriptures? And let me give you that, because it's not like I was unaware of what he was pointing at, but he came from a context wherein a congregation tried to justify historic American slavery using the text that we're talking about in Ephesians today, and then he filtered God's character and the scriptures through that moving forward. Contrast that with my first experience, really with the Bible, was from this amazing movie. Check this out. The Prince of Egypt. Anyone? Anyone? Is it, is, it, is it accurate to the Bible? Not 100%, nope. Uh, but I read the Exodus story because of it. And, and what happened is like, so, so as I'm reading, did this one catch me right here in the guts? Like all the feels, I'm, I'm watching this. Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey duet pops in. You see the Hebrews leaving Egypt. And it's just like, I'm 15, 16 years old, just crying. They look at me in this youth group. And they're like, are you crying? I'm like, no, shut up. Leave me alone. Stop looking at me. Why? Because there's something inside of me that knew this emancipation was beautiful and powerful, and this is what flavored my idea when I approached the scriptures 
of the kind of God I was reading about and the kind of story he was telling. And so what I want you to see is that because of our two different perspectives, we assume two different things when we read the scripture. And when I got to those Ephesian verses, I thought, well, that doesn't quite square up with the God that I understood from the Exodus story. So one of us is off a little bit. And so what I want you to stop and take account, what experiences and perspectives shaped you? How do you approach this book? And how has that um, shaped your understanding of the character of God? All right? Because you could come to two different conclusions depending on how you came at that. And now the third thing that I want you to see is that this all shapes us, or sorry, that we are all shaped by the context of America that we live in. We live in what is called a social egalitarian society. And what I mean by that, and I don't mean egalitarian, complementarian, it's a totally different category set. We're in a social egalitarian society, meaning that the general idea of what we believe is ideal for our society is that freedom should be available to all people. Now, usually when I say that, someone says, but that's not true. And, and I agree that oftentimes it's not true, but even the fact that you think that that should be true proves my point, that the ideal is still freedom. In a non-egalitarian culture, you wouldn't even come up with the idea of that kind of um, uh, uh, liberation or equality wouldn't even come up to you. It wouldn't be a problem at all because it's arranged completely different, okay? So pin that kind of where you're, where, wherever you're at, Remember that idea, and what I want you to see is that there are other societies who, who aren't necessarily engaging in a type of um, caste or slavery system, but they do have a social order, right, that creates respect for elders and seniority, that has a way of honoring positions of authority, assuming that there's no bu- abuse of power, and ca- can you see how possibly that honor, that respect idea could be healthy, again, remove the possibility of abuse if we're talking no abuses present in power. Can you see how that might be helpful in certain contexts? So as a quick reflection, this is what I want you to do. What context did you grow up in? Did your parents consider you equal to them? Were you asked to address adults in a specific way, like Mr. or Mrs.? If you came from the South, I know, you at least said Mr. or Mrs. and their first name, if not their last name, right? Did you use ma'am or sir in your address to different people? These are ways of, of, of developing honor and respect, but they do create a kind of ordering, a structure that they want you to live by. Does that make sense? All right? So, so think about how you grew up and, and how you're oriented because that also shapes the way that you're going to look at what we're doing. And then take that one step further. If you believe that the social ordering is, in, is the integrity by which your society um, uh, is, is built, develops, then when somebody starts pulling some of those bricks out, the first thing you're going to do is get threatened, right? The first thing you're going to do is say, wait, hold up, you can't, you can't just do that. That will end in chaos. That will end in anarchy and disorder. And so what I want you to understand is that if you buy this as essential, then any even hint of deconstruction inside of a structured society could look as, uh, not just as a problem, not just get you in trouble, it could get you killed. Okay, Paul is living in a context where it is not just uh, sir and ma'am, but that if you stepped out of line and addressed somebody that was in a different structure than you, there could be direct ramifications. In fact, I want to remind you of what Aristotle told us in his book of politics, um, uh, politics that, that we talked about. That, that Aristotle set the precedent for this time that household management, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. 
A husband, father rules. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule is different. The rule over children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. Aristotle concludes this section by saying the courage of a man is shown in commanding and of a woman in obeying. All right. It feels awkward, right? This is what Aristotle normalized. Philo comes in quick, backs him up. There's other people. This is what this society lived under. This is the norm. There is a patriarch and they have been told that they are to command and they are a husband to the wife, a father to the children, a master over slaves. Ruler and subordinate is the way in which this structure is arranged. And so what I want us to see is that as we're looking at this, we learn that they aren't necessarily in Egypt under a pharaoh type regime, but under Greek and Roman household codes, normalized, which is, by the way, an affront to the Imago Dei. Do you see that? which Paul affirms multiple times at the beginning of this letter before he even gets to the household codes, making sure that he understands we get our identity is in Christ, all of us. Then Paul hits the copy button on Aristotle's tablet, like a literal stone tablet, right? Then he brings it over to his parchment scroll and says, hmm, Aristotle, I'm going to have to make a few changes to this. And he writes a letter to his people and sends it out to them, meaning he didn't agree with the statement and the structure that Aristotle had established, all right? Do we kind of see the shaping of this moment? And again, the household codes, they're directly related to, built into the understanding of what a good society and good governing system is. Don't mess with it. Don't pull my bricks out. Don't try to undo this because it will be the downfall of our society. And so when Paul comes in Ephesians 5.21 and begins speaking like this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out the gate, he's telling Aristotle to shut his mouth. Do you see what's happening? Then he says, wives, submit yourselves. Again, we talked, this is willing submission, not ruling subjugation that we just saw in that pattern to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their husbands in everything. Switch to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be reunited and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about what? Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, there is so much going on, one sermon couldn't do it. And so we're here at Sermon 2, recognizing that Paul is making some massive changes to the understood social structure of that change. And this is one of the first ones I want you to see. The fact that Paul addresses at all the wives, then the husbands, the children, then the fathers, first slaves, then the masters, 
is the second moment where he's pushing back on Aristotle's understanding because they don't get talked to. They're not valuable in that context that Aristotle was speaking. And Paul is saying, no, not only am I going to address them directly, I'm going to put them first and then address the other one second. So I want to read this quote. Um, Dr. Tim Mackey says this. Uh, Well, it was an emphatic. If you know Dr. Tim Mackey, he's kind of a nerdy little character. And he goes, that's not normal. That was his first response. For Aristotle, the only one worth addressing was the patriarch. He is the ruler. By speaking directly to wives, children, and slaves, he's giving them a level of status and dignity. By giving them names and their own responsibilities, he's making a move that would stand out against the ancient culture. Next, there was no mention of love anywhere in Aristotle or Philo's understanding of these mandates. So love, especially to love like Christ, love the church who died for the church, who sacrificed for the church, who lovingly placed himself under the authority of others, even unto death. I want you to love, I want you to love like that, never rule. So we look back on this as an egalitarian culture and you kind of, you read all those texts at first and you kind of recoil, right? It feels sexist, doesn't it? But they hear this and they think in their hierarchical culture, what is this guy doing? He is tearing brick by brick the fabric of our society. The servant and the children and the wives and the men, they're all sitting at the same table. You have to be kidding. The man is scandalous in representing what he's saying as he writes to the Ephesian church. It's dangerous to rearrange what they suppose and believe keeps their world together. And we can't break ranks. We can't loosen grip. We've got to keep people in their place. There is no room for this kind of equality. It would be chaos. And Paul says, this is the way that God says things should be. And he pushes back. And he says, so, so there's at least option B and C. I'm going to turn this guy right around because he's not represented anymore. And so what's he doing in the midst of all of these things? Interestingly, Paul uses language, did you catch this, that, that reverses the stereotypical roles of men and women of this time because who's doing the cleaning and the washing? The husband. Who's removing stains and wrinkles? The husband. Paul is very brilliant in the way he's writing the letter that he is writing. Then he uses egalitarian language right at that end. He says, we are one flesh, reminding them of the Genesis narrative before the fall. Not after the fall, before the fall. On top of all of this, what you see is that he says it's a profound mystery. And Paul says that he is talking about Christ in the church and he blurs that. He's intentionally blurring these things. He wants to, as they're talking about this stuff, he's like going back and forth. And he's like, well, who am I talking about? Jesus or husbands or Jesus? Well, it applies to you as husbands. But what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. And this is relevant in any house. But I mostly want you to understand that I'm talking that the king of kings, the king of the universe, would anyone of that status stoop so low as to serve his worshipers? Would anyone of that status sacrifice themselves instead of receiving sacrifices for themselves? Would anyone like that wrap uh, an apron around their waist and clean the feet of the disciples? And he does. 
And so there's a a one-for-one moment where he's saying, look, if this God could do that, then surely those of you in higher status can understand that you are meant to serve like Christ served in the midst of this. Do you see what Paul is creating? The effect that he is um, writing in the midst of this context and what kind of waves that it would make inside of this pond. This is a starting point. What I want you to understand is as much as, so, so we can get here pretty quick. It's, he's just, so maybe these are, are just the restrictive norms and they need to just act like Christ, not try to change their status, right? Or is he challenging it for further? And what I want to point your attention to is if what we just read serves as a starting point, we're at least here, but then catch what he does with the rest of his ministry. You think of the women he commissioned as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, as shepherds, as teachers later on in scripture. We see the tension too because Paul knows that this kind of living, it it could get a cultural reaction so strong that the communities might write them off or even attack them, which is why at times you see him kind of come back to this. If we shake this thing up too much, y'all are gonna get killed. And so we need to be measured in the way that we do this. So he's trying to move the needle on how Christians live inside of this new humanity, inside of this new family that he is creating. Dr. Craig Keener, I quoted him last week, he said this, Paul simultaneously relates Christianity to the standards of their own culture and subverts the cultural values by going far beyond them. Both husbands and wives had a form of submission and love towards one another, which honors verse 21, the original verse that often people try to get removed from this. Paul is addressing children next. Um, Note that the children were often the least, seen as the least, as not having any rights at all. It didn't matter um, what status they came from. If an adult was speaking to you, you had to um, bow to that person. This is why Jesus, I think, centers them over and over and protects them, talks very intentionally about protecting them. Verse six says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on this earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So again, Paul addresses the child first, giving them dignity, recalling the Ten Commandments, not putting this in any way upon their nature or ontology that they're just unable to, uh, to, um, uh, to speak or to direct with some sort of equality. This is a commandment that comes with a blessing attached to it that you may live long and enjoy a life. And so even by the way he's handling this and and agreeing with Jesus in his ministry, you see that the children who used to be viewed as a nuisance, avoided, Paul gives them rights. Paul addresses them directly. He gives them dignity. He turns to the fathers and he says, don't be harsh in your punishment towards them. Don't frustrate them as if you were some kind of ungodly person. Engage your children with love and respect instead and commissioning those fathers to teach these children, bringing them up in the ways of the Lord. He's giving them an education, why? So that they have more standing and ability when they represent themselves as adults. And then next he addresses household slaves in verse five through nine. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Just as you would obey Christ, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours 
is in heaven, and there is no favoritism within him. Okay, so it comes back to this section, and, and we would be inaccurate to try to go one way or the other. This is, um, while I'm going to make some kind of application to it, this is not referring to something that is absolutely comparable to chattel slavery in colonial America. It, it wasn't it wasn't the exact same thing. It, that, in that moment, it was not based on skin color. In fact, most slaves, because they had debts, sold themselves into some sort of slavery in this time so that they could work themselves off. And they always had the ability, almost always, I should say, had the ability um, to work their way out of it. That's not always true. But also keep in mind, it was like a third to 50% of the culture um, was, was a servant status in this. So there, there was a, a massive amount of people who this would have been talking to. But I also don't want you, because I've seen this preached too, like, well, that's what that meant then, but really it was like an employee-employer relationship. Also not one for one. That's not quite what's happening here. Um, and so we might be able to make applications in certain areas, but what we're talking about here is somewhere that's in between those. The people who are called slaves here were considered part of the household family, but it was also hierarchical, right? Don't, don't mix that up. It was a system that put them under other people, and, and it was based on ontology, that their very nature, it was, it was that we talked about last week, um, was, was that they meant, were meant to be here. And so again, Paul is going to say some things that pokes at that, that pushes at that, that pulls apart that understanding of that narrative. Um, and so what we see here is Paul is at least going with option B, once again, be Christ-like in spite of your circumstances because the reality is that circumstance exists. I don't want to ignore it. But as you go towards the end of what he's saying, he adds that little bit inside of there. I want to reread it. Do not threaten them since they know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. He's already sowing these seeds of equality. He's always sowing these seeds that something is not going to work the way it is. And so let me, let me stand with option B for just a second because 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Paul is talking to Christian slaves to honor their masters specifically so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So what's the purpose? To create a reputation wherein they will have more influence. Titus 2, 3 through 8 says, Paul is teaching various roles in the house to be exemplary models in their household. This isn't just slaves, but it's talking about um, husbands and wives as well. Um, So that no one will malign the word of God and so they cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So, So once again, to be clear and to be consistent with this, There's no way that Paul is encouraging the establishment or permanent um, co-signing of slavery in any way, shape, or form. It's not meant to be standardized. He's recognizing the reality of it, that slavery in their society exists, and how they can either earn the respect to make change from within, or, and I'm going to advocate for this, that I think he is directly challenging the restrictive norms. And here is why I think he says that. When you look at other parts of Scripture, when you take it further to the trajectory of the greater liberation, you see that the end section brings that up, that there is no favoritism among them. 1 Corinthians 7, 21b through 23 says, If you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when you are called is Christ's slave. You were were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. All right? 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 1.10. 
for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's naming slave traders, and this is specifically a human trafficking understanding inside of the midst of that. Um, I'm going to stop real quick and say I understand that I just hit another buzzword in there that might throw you all off. Please stay focused on what we're talking about. We've addressed other issues in other contexts. What I want to point out here is, is the, the, the direct um, naming of slave traders in this. The book of Philemon says this in verses 15 through 16. <clears throat> The, perhaps the reason he was separated, he's talking about a slave from his master, for you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You see, I think what, what's, when you watch the trajectory that Paul's building, and, and you see where he's taking this. He's like, in Ephesians, I need you to, to pay attention to the status that's going on. We're taking this thing apart together. We're pulling this thing apart as a unified whole. But, but there's certain times and moments where you're going to have to operate in part B because these restrictive norms, though they're not right, act Christ-like in front of them, earn credibility, and let's pull it apart that way. And then other times where he's like, we're going to challenge these restrictive norms. We're going to tear this whole thing back. In fact, this guy is not your slave at all. He's your brother. Now how do you treat him? You see Paul, even in the midst of that, he's like, look, I could make you do this, but I know you're not going to make me do that. I could order you to treat him as your brother, but I know, I know Philemon, you won't make me do that. Do you see what he's doing? Over and over, we see this moment where we see this trajectory, and he is building this case against us. So we have clear evidence of, of pushing away from these options so we can move into these other ones. Paul is using this idea, this, this, um, this context, this cultural aspect for a greater purpose so that he can pull it apart whenever it's able to be pulled apart, just as Paul used his own imprisonment to get to greater uh, audiences, to get to Rome, to get to officials so that he could persuade them towards Christ. He's teaching us how to use whatever cultural context we might be in, no matter how free or unfree we might be found, in order to proclaim the gospel. And after that, we see a trajectory of liberation moving forward in the text that applies to us even today. So this is what Paul is doing in his time what do you see him do? If there's still inequity, if there's still racism in our day, if there is still misogyny in our day, if there is ageism, if there's all, all, the, all the different ways in which our society likes to parse things out to try to put ourselves on top of someone else, what is it that we need to do in our day to work in order to bring that apart? Well, I think we lean on the character of God, the one that we saw in the book of Exodus. Did you know that in many traditions, the book of Exodus is actually the first uh, book in the scriptures? A Genesis story gets told. It's not like it's gone. But in order to understand that this is the kind of character that we want to establish moving forward, many traditions make Exodus book number one. They want us to know that's what we're dealing with. That's the character that we're working with. And so we look back at this 
um, liberating God who sets people free from pharaohs, who sets people free from Rome and, and Greek, who uses the culture at best to create moments where we can sow seeds of liberation. He pours out his spirit equally on the old and the young in the book of Acts, the sons and the daughters. No matter who you are, the spirit fills you. And then he finds his fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus Christ where it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as the extension of Christ's ministry today, as the Acts 29 church, right, the next chapter yet unwritten, we get to represent this God of Exodus, the God who Paul writes on behalf of, the God that Jesus comes and he calls all of the disenfranchised, those lowly in heart, and says, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to pray for us here as we um, end today. Uh, and, and, and we're getting close to the end of Ephesians altogether. But in large part, what I want us to see is that he is talking to this place and this city and this people because he is wanting to establish a unified front between the believers, Jew and Gentile, so that they can come at this kingdom uh, agenda, this kingdom uh, mindset and live it out. And that's what I wanna call us to today. How is it that we're going to find ways to liberate inside of our culture? How is it that we are going to find ways um, to, uh, to use the culture against itself if it is working against the kingdom of heaven? How is it that God has personally asked you to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. And so would you take just a moment and reflect on that? Close your eyes. You can bow your heads if you want. And Father, would you just speak to us and tell us what part of this you want us to have? We've worked through identity. We've worked through unity. We've worked through uh, becoming children of light and putting away the things of darkness. We've talked about as a, a group of people that this letter Ephesians is informing us in our identity and all the different ways in which we are wholly chosen, blameless, found, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, sealed in the spirit. And now as people who are built on a kingdom identity, Lord, we get to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven to others and actively be participants in creating a kingdom that honors all people, no matter how their status was when they were born, no matter what the culture wants to do to define them. And so my final prayer, Father, just comes out of Isaiah. Would you let every mountain and hill be brought low and every valley be lifted up? Make straight the way of the Lord. And give us conviction and courage to do whatever it is that you want us to do as a result of that. We ask for this right now all in the powerful name and the liberating name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.